A lot of people are doing like 1,000 calorie or 1,200 calorie diets per day, and that doesn't work as well. We actually are finding that being off of food completely, that there is a benefit from that specifically. And like you're saying, what I would say is that it's so important to realize that those are just as effective, if not more effective than metformin. But the question is, can you do it? A lot of people can't do it. That's why I say working up to it is really important and not being hard on yourself. And I think that those are the important things. Welcome to The Medical Matrix, everyone. I'm your host, Dr. Rosie Sender. Today I have Dr. Taylor, and we're going to talk about preventative health care and longevity medicine. And we may be able to touch a little bit on MDMA for PTSD. So today I'm going to turn it over to Dr. Shaw to introduce herself, and then we'll launch into the episode. Hi, Dr. Taylor. Hi, I'm Sonal Shaw Taylor and Dr. Taylor, and I work in Asheville, North Carolina, and I also work in California. I have licenses in both states, so I'm, I'm working in both places. I'm a functional medicine doc, but before functional medicine, I've been a hospitalist for 12 or 13 years, and essentially, I started having some basic symptoms of GI illness after getting catching something in Ecuador back in 2010, 2011. And then ultimately what happened was, is that nobody could tell me why I was having uh, GI issues. And, and clearly like I could try to diagnose myself and I could talk to colleagues and nobody could really help me with like irritable bowel sy- symptoms. And I ended up treating myself and And I found that there was a bit of a hole in the medical system. And so I started really diving in and researching functional medicine. And then as well, my husband, who has Crohn's disease, also was going to be put on a TNF-alpha inhibitor, which is basically a biologic agent that cuts off all inflammation at his age of 30 at the time. And we just didn't want to do that. For one of those injections for a TNF-alpha inhibitor, it's about $70,000. So like per injection, which you get every eight weeks, and then you're on it for the rest of your life. It's not something that they say, oh, we can phase this off eventually. And we both were just looking for alternate ways. And we kept him off of medications for about 10 years using these approaches. So I, I really feel like passionate about the fact that if we look into these root causes, that there's a chance that we can maybe not completely prevent disease, but we can help mitigate the symptoms and the morbidity and more like that we get with these things. So that's where I'm at. And and so I'm doing that actively uh, treating patients on a telemedicine platform. And this was prior to COVID telemedicine, as well as in-person visits, just like meeting up with people. What you're describing is functional medicine approach. And so can you explain that a little bit further for people who might not be familiar with that type of healthcare or terminology? Sure. So I do functional medicine, which essentially was coined by Dr. Bland. And it's root cause medicine. And it's at like talking about function of disease, like before it becomes a disease, like how your body is functioning before you actually elicit the process of having a disease. There are many factors, whether it's environmental, whether it's toxins, whether it's gut microbiome, food, these are all like such important things in in terms of decide, like figuring out like what will cause, it's not just that you just have the disease as the end point, which I think is the real problem in the Western approach and the way that we do things generally in the hospitals, there's no aspects of prevention and there's no aspects of going to these root causes because we assume that everything is just fixed which also means that it's hard to study functional medicine. Functional medicine is pretty difficult to study because every single person is individualized. When I see my patients, they're like, normally like I have to do anywhere from a 75 minute to 90 minute visit. And that is, it can be pretty intensive. They have to do about an hour and a half of like questionnaires before they ever see me. And so it's an intensive process, but it's so rewarding because it helps us like really unpack 
what brought this person to this disease? And I think that can be hard in a broader system and the way that we're working in the world. But I'm trying to figure out kind of innovative ways of doing that, which would be like doing like group visits and other people are doing this, where if somebody has a similar type of diagnosis, me and a health coach or nutrition counselor will get together, see the patients together, we'll see 10 people with a certain diagnosis, and we'll all get together and, and then I'll take them each aside for 10 or 15 minutes. And I think that's a potentially really interesting way of having other people have access to this because it could be affordable and it could also give people a sense of camaraderie. Like I've noticed that with like group visits, there's like a sense of like accountability and community. Uh, I really feel like this is one of the ways of the future of just having these like team approaches to visits. But that's how it's different. It's really, it's really hard to do that, though, when we only have 15 minutes with a patient. As, as a primary care physician, they only have 15 minutes or 30 minutes at the most. How can you really get to each individual detail? Yeah, and that is very difficult because that's just not the way we're set up in healthcare in North America. Some elements of it do exist, I think, when we're, but we're usually treating a person when they have the disease, instead of putting some focus into providing education around healthy habits to, to prevent said disease from occurring. And, and that comes down to just the way we've uh, set up our education system within healthcare and also just how we educate the general public or how they have become used to healthcare in North America. So we focused on the types of diseases that are out there. Okay, how do you recognize it? How do you diagnose it? This is how you treat it. But the focus wasn't necessarily on how do we prevent people from getting there? Obviously, it's talked about, right? Healthy diets, exercise, all that kind of stuff, but almost in a very general sense, not in the sense that this is how we have to approach our patients, this sort of this kind of educational approach or how we should even be thinking about how we practice. Yeah. So what are your thoughts? I would just say, I think it's, I think it's like, we're not even being treated well when we were med students or residents or like as doctors. So if we aren't maintaining that lifestyle, how are we supposed to convey it to our patients? We are told what we were told when we were in medical school residency that we should be working for 40 hours straight. And the, the restrictions were really not fully in place when either of us were in residency. And so the thing is, it's not even prioritized. And the adrenal response is going to be so hard. We're just told to like drink more caffeine. And then we're like affecting our cortisol rates and we're causing ourselves to be stressed out. And so if we don't even have that mentality about being in this kind of like very balanced state, then how can we teach our patients to be that way? That's a deeper philosophical way that we live our environment, like in the West, I would say. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I remember our professors or a lot of them would talk about the idea, you have to have balance. And they would talk about it. And I remember hearing it a lot. And I'm like, yeah, but Nobody actually practices balance in, the, in that world. Because if you try to be balanced, then you're judged for being balanced because then you're not focused enough on your studies or the specialty because why do you have time to go do this sort of fun activity or this activity or spending time with family and friends, all things that are actually healthy for you. But you're taught to live a lifestyle where you're always on the go. And then if you have to skip meals or lose sleep or you know, drink a ton of caffeine, hey, you have to do it because you just have to show up and this is what's expected of you. But yeah, you're right. We don't, we didn't learn in that process to live a healthy lifestyle. But yeah, we were conditioned to tell people, oh, you need to be a little bit more balanced and you need to live a healthier lifestyle. But yet, we weren't kind enough to ourselves or to each other. How many pulmonologists or cardiologists, at least that I know personally, who've smoked, who then tell their, who, who, who tell their patients not to smoke? I think it's like an interesting thing. And so it's like one of those things where I think that we need to change how we frame these classes for people. Like we barely have any training on nutrition prevention. Maybe we have some, but it's like just not really understanding everything. And then when our patients ask about us about nutrition and prevention, we say, 
this is what we should generally do, but we don't actually understand what it's saying. Like we don't understand how did the ADA come up with their guidelines for diets, like these carbohydrate diets and like how the world of nutrition has shifted so dramatically, or even how like people are exercising. If we don't understand these things, how can we then convey it to our patients who ask us about these things? Like we can't really have conversations unless we've read about a read on it or if we've learned about it. And then most doctors, what they'll say is, yes, you should exercise and yes, you should eat well and you should do this. But they won't go into they won't go into the, the details of that. And, and I, our patients need that. And so maybe that's not what the doctor should be doing. Maybe that's what a counselor and a, like maybe every clinic should have a prevention counselor. I don't know. I agree with that. So now, as you know, I'm an orthopedic surgeon. My time is limited with each patient and they're, it's a really volume heavy type of, of specialty. And I try for the most part to provide education to patients, especially around, because you know, we, we, we fix a lot of fractures, right? So I'll have a lot of patients who come in with osteopenia or osteoporosis. So I'm always counseling on vitamin C, like vitamin D, calcium intake, protein intake, all that kind of stuff. But I also know that I don't have the time to really go in depth with each patient to go over what their particular habits are what they are actually able to incorporate into their diets or exercise lifestyle. So I've actually sent people to nutritionists and especially when they have a lot of questions, because I'm like, I don't have, I I don't think I have the capacity or the education to probably help you in the way you need to be helped. But I can at least send you someplace where you can learn that. And, you know, I, sending people to physical therapists as we, we we tend to do that anyway. That's just part of the practice. But I've delegated that kind of responsibility to people I feel are better educated about it. So there's two things that I wanted to talk about is like in the insurance-based model, if they put more money into specifically into prevention counselors or prevention timing, even with doctors, let's say they gave, they would pay for a certain amount of prevention time that would be extra, that would be important to put people in protocols, whether they're in addictions or like weight loss or metabolic syndromes. Like, I I think that this would significantly change how, how much medicine we're needing for the patient. And it would also give the patients the support they need. And they don't need to do it one-on-one. They could do it with 10 people at a time they can do it in these group models. There's ways of doing this that are are very like well thought out that people are trying, attempting all across the country that insurance will cover. Like in my clinic, we have uh, restoration programs where it'll, I work in a team approach where I have a nutrition counselor who also does health coaching and other aspects, not just nutrition. And she is well versed in diets that I'm just I don't know every single thing about every diet. I know a lot about diets because I've tried a lot of them, but but she knows about every little detail. And then I have a body worker who also does body work because there's so much there's so much trauma and pain that locates in different aspects of people's bodies that I think it's important to to address that part of disease. Like the disease isn't always just the physical, the disease is emotional, the disease is spiritual, it's genetic, there's all these different aspects. I think it's like, if we're going to be able to move people towards making these huge changes, the only way we can do it is if we have a team to move a ship. That's what somebody told me one day was that like getting people to change their habits is like moving like a huge ship. Let's say if you think about a cruise ship and just like moving it around to the middle. And I, I always it's a funny observation, but I, it's really true that you need help in these things. You can't just you can't expect people to just stop smoking and say, OK, I'll give you a nicotine patch and you just stop smoking. People need accountability. They, they need like people to regularly talk to and like address those things with. 
I agree. And I think we need to definitely have more resources for people to, or at least know about the resources that probably do exist in some of our communities or our areas that we can send patients to. You know, one of the things that I have to regularly counsel people on is like smoking cessation, especially for when we have, so for bone healing, it's imperative that you don't smoke. We see a high non-union rate if we, if a patient heavily smokes and, you know, you'll come in a person with a fracture and I'm going to have to operate or, or even for an elective procedure. And if they tell you that there's, that they smoke, I'm, I have to say things like, you need to stop smoking or this isn't going to heal. And I, I know it's easy for me to say this in practice because I know I have to say this in the clinic because I have to give them the heads up. But I'm basically expecting this person who's had this like habit for God knows how many years and maybe smoking like a pack a day. Okay, tomorrow you need to quit completely because we need to heal this fracture. I know that's very unrealistic for me to ex- have that expectation. But if I, but if again, I, I, and I also usually relay that to the patient. I, I usually do say that I know it's easy for me to say this and this is going to be a hard thing for you to do. But it, it would be also nice, I think, to be able to have the patients have somewhere to go to help them through this or are a little groups and they probably exist. But I feel like sometimes I probably should be more aware of this, like in the community so I can help. They they need more money towards that. This is not something that's systematically in it. You know, right now we're having the conversations over and over about obesity and worse outcomes in COVID. It's really coming up. You have much worse outcomes. And this entire thing is coming up. And I I think there might've been like editorial or something in JAMA about how in the UK, it's like, how do we not shame people in the process of, losing weight as a potential target to not having worse outcomes with COVID. I'm not saying you're not going to get coronavirus, but the question is, what kind of outcomes are you going to have? And I think that the key here is that we can have more, we need to have more services and we need to be aligned with, you know, what foods are like we serving in a hospital, for example. Right. Like yeah. when we have <laughs> I know. I, it's so <laughs> awful. What kind of examples are we giving? Like of uh, of the food, just even basically like how can we do these basic changes so that people can be in a healthier state? And it's very important for our time right now. Right now it's more important than it's ever been because not only we have all of these chronic conditions, but we have this pandemic to really like isolate where we're like really at a loss. Yeah, and I think it definitely highlights some of the issues in terms of our our habits and our uh, lifestyle factors. This disease is definitely doing that. I think it's complicated because in the past, like doctors used to really, I think people were pretty harsh about it. And then we became very PC about it where it was like, can't talk about it at all. And I think now, at least the discussions in the functional medicine world are that it's really not about caloric restriction, for example. It's actually about like the gut microbiome. So when I talk to people about whether it's alternate day fasting or intermittent fasting, like in the process of helping them lose weight, I always say it's not your fault. Like your gut microbiome might be bad because of what you're eating is causing like a poor gut microbiome. And then that would put you in a position where you could retain weight. So it's just the conversation from it being this individual thing to this societal way of not having the right resources and not having the proper kind of like support to lose weight. Because if we're being fed all of these really processed foods and we don't know what preservatives do to gut microbiome, like that's like a big new thing that people have been talking about, but I've thought about it is just what does, what do preservatives, not to mention GMOs, not to mention all of these other toxins, what do they do to gut microbiome? And if we're finding that gut microbiome is partially one of the reasons that people are gaining weight, then, then wow, it's completely not their fault. It's like, it has nothing to do with them. And so how can we be of support? I think that it's just hard. In, in this world, people have told me when they're obese, like it's so hard 
because sometimes when they're really heavy, when I've worked in the hospital and heart failure floors, I've had patients up to 500 to 900 pounds. I had a patient who's 900 pounds and she was only 5'2". In those situations, she said the hardest thing to me is people won't even look at you in public. They won't acknowledge your existence. And so in some way, they're like completely ignored. But what are we doing as a society? What are we giving in society to like to really cause that problem? Because what they're finding is people with gastric bypass, for example, if they have a gastric bypass, that they're switching their addiction to something else after. So if it's not food anymore, it switches to shopping, it switches to something else but that we're not actually addressing the cause. We're not addressing where the real issue behind the problem is. It's not the food itself. It's actually another problem and we're not addressing that. So your gut microbiome may have some component to it, but if you have some sort of addictive personality or some sort of psychological factor that's causing you to overeat, at least to that extent where she was uh, 900 pounds, clearly there's some sort of psychological component there. And then that's when it becomes important to have a multi-pronged approach to caring for somebody. Absolutely. And it's for, and that's the same for any addiction. It's the same for any, anything. And since most diseases, let's say 80% of chronic disease is, they, they say, is reversible, then I would say that's the key of where we need to be focusing on. We need to be focusing on diet, why people are so anxious or depressed or why they have certain factors that are causing these things. And we will shift the entire like focus of how we address disease. I think that's like hitting like the crux of where it is. It just comes down to an awareness and education, right? So self-awareness to see what you can do to help yourself or what you're not doing to help yourself and then getting the, and then having the motivation to get the education around it. I feel extremely grateful. I grew up with a lifestyle of learning that there has to be a balance between mind, body, and spirit. I grew up from a really young age with meditation as a daily part of my day. We did yoga as a family, which is hilarious to me, but we did. And then, but just always being active and then just eating healthy. Part of it came from, I think, some of the way that my parents grew up and culturally and stuff as well. But that, that was always a big part of what I feel allowed me to get through a lot of my stressful years because I certainly didn't follow all those all those really good tools during especially my residency years, fellowship years and you know, med school years, lost a little bit of touch with that. But I really come back to leaning on that sort of that balance between mind, body and spirit to try to get to a healthier lifestyle. But again, like I know for myself, I'm really lucky I had a, a foundation, but it's a lot of people don't. How do you get that out to people? How do you help them with that concept? What are your thoughts on that? So I have a lot of thoughts on that. Actually, it's interesting because you and I are both Indian and we grew up in different traditions. And I would say, actually, we came up from very different families. Like you're, nobody in your family, I think we're physicians, right? No, nobody at all. Everybody in my family were physicians, like literally every single person. And none of them were spiritual. There was a complete, like a lack of balance, actually. My dad was an OB. He just retired at 70 just a few years ago, but like he never stayed balanced. He's much more balanced now, I would say, after retirement, but that's not the focus. Like as a hospitalist, I worked as a hospitalist for many years. I still do some sometimes like and you work basically one week on, one week off, but when you're working really hard. Like it's pretty like intense. And my dad one time, he's like I was working full time, which is technically half time. And he would say, oh my God, you're not working enough. You're, you have a week off. What, go work somewhere else. What are you doing? And I would always say, I have other things I'm interested. I'm doing other things. And so I think that's really a point where 
I would say that we need to make this a bigger part of our education systems from a young age, not just from like when they're older. And I know that they're doing it in some schools, but I think like having a daily awareness practice, it doesn't have to be based in a religion, just like an awareness, like you said, like an awareness practice, a breathwork practice every day for the children, making sure like my daughter is currently because of coronavirus, she's in a homeschool program, but it's eight kids. It's very small and they're doing like hot lunches and they they do all organic local meat, local cheese and local vegetable like foods. And so they try to package like kids foods in like these really beautiful, like really healthy ways. Do you remember what we ate in school when we were kids? I don't know. It might've been better in Canada than the US, but in the US it was horrible. Like those pizzas, those like flat triangular, like those rectangular pizzas. And people always say that this is not possible, but what about growing your food? What about like schools growing some of their food so then the kids can then eat some fresh vegetables? These are things that they can institute. So I guess my point to come to it is that I definitely did not have that growing up. And I came to it partially because I started feeling not right in my 20 or 30s. I've always been pretty thin. But once I started getting sick, I got multiple GI tract illnesses from traveling around the world. My guts really locked up and I, I was having like a really hard time and nobody could tell me why. And fortunately, I was in a position where I could do the research and I got to that position. And I know a lot of functional medicine, integrated, personalized medicine docs, anti-aging docs, all of them, a lot of them have come to it from a similar place of wanting to help themselves first. But if we can bring this stuff out into public and we have this chance right now because of coronavirus, like right now, if we can start making these preventative changes, starting with school age children, like things will be completely different because that's what they'll grow up with. This is like a societal shift. It has to be like a bigger shift than just, and there has to be more money put into this stuff. And instead of putting the millions and millions of dollars we're putting into just like vaccines and stuff, like what about keeping our population healthier? Oh, exactly. I always find that conversation very interesting that this whole focus on vaccines and the medications around it, which obviously there needs to be, I'm not saying not to have that, but you're right. Why aren't we also focusing on that educational component about get yourselves as healthy as possible? And the news is just filled with, oh, vaccine is expected this time or wear a mask or socially distance. Those are all good things. But what else can you do to keep yourself in as healthy of a state as possible so that if you do get coronavirus, maybe you may not have as severe a course or worst case scenario, die from it. But we're not focusing on the what can you do to boost your immunity? What can you do to protect yourself innately from this? It's very problematic. So there's a bunch of things actually that I would respond to that in terms of what I talk to people about. And I think one thing is that we've done a few studies and, and obviously these are all preliminary studies about coronavirus, but people, they were looking at lower coronavirus rates and vitamin D and that was over the summer, I think that study came out early in the summer. And so this was still early in the data. And people tended to do worse in terms of outcomes with uh, lower vitamin D levels. And another article just came out in the last week, and it corroborated this at a much broader level with much bigger patient populations, the vitamin D deficiency. And that's something that we could maybe target as a preventative strategy. So most people are saying the target ranges are above a 25 or 20 to 30, I think, in vitamin D. And in the, in the functional medicine world, we say more like 40 to 50. 40 to 50, wow. Yeah, we really want you to be in terms of vitamin D. And so that's a potential target. Yes, I, we want you to be in the sun, but maybe there's some reason why you need to take supplementation and Another place is like they're doing studies on IV vitamin C because that's been helpful. Zinc, glutathione, those, these are all things. Another one is melatonin because it affects the NF-kappa B and there's been some small scale studies on that, but that could be used as a potential target. But more importantly, 
let's decrease our carbohydrates. Let's decrease our sugars. Like those are going to keep you in an inflamed state. We know that the inflammasome is like affecting where people are at with coronavirus. And then the last place, and this is like a big key part, is that they're showing pe- that people with that do potentially much worse with coronavirus have very high cortisol rates. And that was another study that came out this summer. And so from my perspective, we're looking at that as if we're in this chronically cortisol, like high cortisol states from anxiety and stress from what people are talking about coronavirus. And I mean, with the wildfires in California, we're going through so much stress. The election, all of these things, a Black Lives Matter protest, we're going through an intense time. What is that doing to our cortisol? I would love to do a study on like average cortisol rates right now for people in general. I know. And you know, there's that whole concept of that like hive mind idea. There is a lot of anxiety all around. And I agree. And when you're in an increased stress state, your immunity is affected. It just is. And it doesn't help. Every day, the news is filled with some sort of impending doom. It affects everybody's stress and it's going to be cumulative. We've talked about this before too, but I'm a big proponent of doing whatever you can to diminish sort of the anxiety just to keep yourself in a a little bit of a stress-free state so that you can be as healthy as possible. And like I've said, this is the unfortunate thing right now since all the places that I like to go running are consumed in flames. But one of the things that I started doing a lot was, and this was a little bit more recently, I, I... do run in these in these redwood trails or go hiking, whatever I feel like. But what I started to do in the last two, three months is actually I keep my phone with me turned off though. Like I keep it just in case I have some sort of emergency uh, and I need it, but I disconnect completely. And I either do walking meditations or I'll just run and I won't be connected to anything but nature. It just allows you to be truly present in that moment. You're conscious of your own breathing pattern. You're conscious of every muscle that's uh, that's engaging. And you're just more conscious of your own self, your own being. To find some balance, being meditative, you can then really know yourself. It's like knowing yourself is to kind of be rooted in just your being instead of just being lost in the in your mind in your stressful thoughts or anything and i feel that helps really reduce anxiety levels reduce stress levels and it's just become a daily thing that i do i get out in nature in some way or form whether it's like the redwoods or even out on the ocean if i'm going surfing i've started to do that more regularly because i can just be present let go of everything and let go of the connection to the rest of the anxiety (laughs) producing world. And I feel like it allows for a healthier existence or a healthier mindset anyway. Absolutely. I would totally offer that people can do that in different ways. And that's a really important component to anything that I would recommend or that anybody would recommend. It would be that not only just getting into nature, if that's what they want to do, some people feel that they just need to be in a room alone or listen to music. You know, in Japan, it's like this whole idea of forest bathing. And they've done studies on forest bathing in Japan and and how much that helps. But obviously, they've done yoga and awareness practices. They've shown how it decreases anxiety and decreases cortisol levels. And and so there's many studies and many different modalities. So whatever works for you, try that, do that. I listen to Brene Brown a lot and her, like the studies into gratitude practices and how that changes overall health and well-being and resilience in terms of the world. I think that's something that I would offer that every single person, no matter what state that they're in, that they take five minutes just to write down what they're most grateful for and they will find a shift in how that they're dealing with the world. I think sometimes we tend to focus on what we don't have or what's not working. But if you just shift your focus to, hey, what is working right now? What is good? There does tend to be like an inner shift in the way you then start viewing the world. And things are 
And it's just then easier to live, really, right? It's just a it's just a better place to be. One of the other things I wanted to just circle back on was you mentioned vitamin D. Do you have any recommendations on how much vitamin D somebody should be taking or some of it's individual too, right? Based on deficiency levels. Some of it depends on what their levels are, but I say a safe range is anywhere from 2,000 to 4,000. And some people end up having to do higher weekly doses. If they're deficient, they'll do 50,000 IUs for the week. Another thing that I was going to talk about with what we were just talking about is with blue lights and technology, it also, especially if you're like lit, like watching a screen late at night, which is what most people are doing, it delays how much like your secretion of melatonin it directly impacts the the secretion of melatonin. And so what happens is that you're not getting tired till later in the night. And a big thing is sleep as well. So sleep is such an important part, like eight hours of sleep. And if we're watching like screens till midnight, maybe we don't actually go to bed till one. And then we have to wake up for our work day or whatever school day. It's really shifting our patterns quite a bit. So people like even avoiding blue lights for the last two hours before bed or or otherwise using like blue blocking sunglasses or something. That's kind of the key is like something to do. That's a good point. The filter on the phone isn't good enough just for people to keep in mind. The filter itself that's just on, but like the one that you can maybe buy is fine. But if it's like just a filter, it's quite, it's not quite good enough. And that's only if you want to look at a screen two hours before bed. Why not just just shut it off? Try to avoid it. And you'll be probably because sleep is a big, huge component in terms of coronavirus and anxiety. If you're not getting enough sleep, it's going to be a hard time. You're going to do worse. That's going to cause changes in your inflammatory cascades. It's going to change all of these other factors. You're not going to have that time to reset. You need that. It's, a, it's really key. And which I'm getting a lot better with now that COVID's really actually helped me in terms of getting enough sleep. But I think back to all those like years I lost residency and fellowship. I feel like I'm catching up on it in the last couple of years. The amazing thing is I've said this like a lot the last few months. I'm like, wow, I didn't like sleep. Enough sleep feels great. This is amazing. <laughs> and, then, and also just, I don't even really need coffee in the morning, but I, I still drink it out of a ritual lies. Absolutely. And that's like a key to longevity, actually having a good health span of living well until however long you're going to live. But the point is living well. And that point is sleep is so key. And honestly, I've had these varying discussions because I've done a lot of meditative practices and a lot of the meditative practices, you actually don't need as much sleep as you think you do, but you're in meditation. You're like, you're basically sleeping. You're, you're restoring yourself anyways. Sleep, meditation, all these things are extremely important. And I think that just in terms of that, when we talk about just healthy, just a healthy lifestyle, but also in terms of longevity too. And and we're going to talk a little bit more about that in, in the podcast. But I also wanted to maybe go a little bit in depth on diet as well, because I think that's a hard one for people just to know, especially given in the kind of society that we live, like highly processed foods and people, apart from COVID, that slowed everybody's life down a little bit. But before that, everybody lives a fast paced lifestyle, just need to get food on the go. I grew up vegetarian. I adopted a vegan lifestyle five years ago. Generally feel pretty good. In general, should people look at when they're trying to think of a healthy diet? So I think that everybody is different, but I I think that there's something, a place where all of them intersect. You'd be surprised, but I've been ketogenic before. I've been paleo before. I've, you know, just been plain vegetarian. And now I'm vegan with a little fish occasionally, just like very rarely, but And what I've noticed is that even if you eat meat or don't eat meat, what they're saying is mostly eat plants, 
just just eat a lot of plants and then whatever else you're going to have for your protein and your fat you can add in but mostly eat plants and and that's why I love Michael Pollan and in the defense for food he is don't eat from the middle aisles in the grocery store eat from their surrounding areas you know what i mean i love that concept yeah yeah i just because it's always if you're sitting there in the middle eating these processed foods whether they're gluten free like everybody's eating gluten free it's don't change from eating gluten to gluten-free and suddenly you're eating all of these processed carbs all the time. That's not the point of, I don't think that's going to cause, that's not going to be a good thing in the end. Like in the end, you don't want to overdo it. You want to have a variety of plants if you can, like with the plethora of farmers markets and like different options, we have all of these options for different types of vegetables. If you can, I use an instant pot quite a bit, which is electrical pressure cooker And essentially for me, as somebody who's Indian, like, and I like lentils and beans and things like that, it's an easy way to cook. It also has a slow cooker option. It has a rice option. It has many, like it's pretty inexpensive, but it's a good way for people who are working all day to just put a few things in there. And then you'll have a well-prepared, like really good meal, whether you eat meat or whether you eat vegetarian or vegan, you can have either way. You can have a lot of different things. And I eat a lot of plants. I, I eat a lot of what's local. I grow my own food when I can, which God, it's so much work. I mean, hats off to all the farmers. I know I have a lot of friends who are farmers. It is so much work to grow food. Like it's like that ability to grow our food is such a beautiful thing and eat what is in season. And so that's what I recommend. But if you have a chronic condition, what I would recommend is, is that try taking yourself off of what we call an elimination diet, which is dairy, gluten, soy, corn, egg. Those are the big five. And I would say if you can, if you stop those, stop those for four to six weeks and then reinstitute them after one week at a time. And this is just a basic idea. If you have a condition and you don't know what it's, what's causing it, you can try that as an option, as a at just as a way to test yourself. It doesn't cost anything. And it seems really hard, but you can eat most meat and try to eat good quality meat if possible. And then you can eat rice and other things that are non-glutinous still. And, you know, now we have lentil pastas and there's all sorts of cauliflower crust, gluten-free pizzas with vegan cheese. I mean, you could do all sorts of stuff. I'm not, that's not optimal because that's still really processed. But you have to meet people where they're at. If you're going to tell anybody, take everything out, they're going to resist you. You have to work within each person. But what I would say is that this is something easy for anybody to do it. You know, it's, it's so complicated because people say we've had dairy or gluten in different forms for so many thousands of years, but so many things have been modified and changed with how we treat our cows and genetically modified wheats and things like that. And then also, but more importantly, uh, glyphosate and, and other toxins that affect our, our, our dairy and gluten. And so like, sometimes like I've heard this from many people that people who eat, drink like raw milk in New Zealand, they're like, I'm totally fine in New Zealand, like New Zealand or India with the indigenous cows. That's a different type of protein, like a different type of cow milk also. Sometimes it's A2 milk, which is like a different type of casein. And so some people don't have problems with that type of protein, but then they do with the one that we have here. And so for here, we have to just eliminate. That's the only thing that we could do because we can't really, we don't know what's causing what at this point. Right. I'm going to just like pivot now to talking a little bit more about longevity medicine. I mean, that's something that you and I have discussed before, and I find it pretty fascinating and you have an interest in it. Can you tell us a little bit about the concept of longevity medicine? So I think it's going again into this idea of health span. I I think it's the idea that you can live as long, like long and well as you possibly can. And so it's not just by living up to 120, but it's like living well to 80, let's say, or 100 or something, you know, living well, but just living well, like living in this like way where you're functioning in life and how can we do that and what factors affect the human body. And the main areas that we're finding that we're being affected that really affect aging are 
like oxidative stress from reactive oxygen species that we get from different foods and different aspects of our environment that then cause damage to our cells. And then also like mitochondrial health, which the mitochondria are so important because they actually help form all of the energy in our body, all of the ATP to energize every single cell. And those are the places where we are really like targeting in on. And one area that we're targeting in on, if you want to test outside of like biological aging from like some people do CBC, a chemistry, a hemoglobin A1C, all of the lipid levels, and they test biological aging that way. Now, my whole thing is that you won't get those markers early on. They, they kind of like they'll kind of end up being in the middle phases where you start getting those changes. But I like to look at telomere length and telomeres are basically like DNA that gets shorter and shorter as you grow older. And the interesting thing about it is that as you use, as your DNA replicates and as you're having like different processes throughout your life, as you're getting older, you use that more and more. And so it starts getting shorter and shorter and shorter. And ultimately what we want to do is see if there are factors that could affect this. And so I've tested mine. And recently, I was really excited about this. And so I'm 41. And I'm testing like biologically at 30, 31. And I think it's partially from fasting and like the different meditative practices I do and, and just different things. And so there's a bunch of things that we can do. And I have a friend who who is this amazing guy. He is he did these mar- set of marathons in the Sahara desert. And he did a double marathon, then a single marathon, a double marathon. Oh my God. Yeah. It's crazy. And it was all in a row over five or six days. And then he started multiple nonprofits, one in Haiti. And we also have one in the Lakota reservation. And he's just a great guy. He lives life fully, like fully. He also was an ultimate fighter and, and he's Indian and, and he tested, he's really into longevity medicine and he tested his telomeres and he tested at 65 and he's 42. But the interesting thing about that now, why is it that somebody who is so healthy and able to do these things get having a bio, like an age on his telomeres is 65. It's because of his cortisol response. Think about what doing, like going to the desert and like going to these double marathons and single marathon, and then doing all of these other crazy things that he does, that sometimes he's in this high cortisol state. And so how he shifted it was through fasting. He personally started doing a fasting mimicking diet. And that's from research with Voltar Longo from USC that he's done on mice. And you basically mimic a diet for five days a month And you don't always do it for a month. It depends. Like you do it for five days for three months, and then you take a few months off and then you do it again and you do less than 500 calories. So you're mimicking as if you're fasting, but you're not doing carbohydrates, mostly plants. And it's a really interesting kind of like well-defined way that if you subscribe to his program, you can get the supplements or you can make a diet very similar and through fasting and through more like meditation practices and through relaxing his lifestyle, his aging went down to 45. So how long did it take for him to... It was maybe one year or two years. And so that was a big shift. And so then he was checking every year. And so sometimes we could do that for people. It's like, oh, if you're going to do these fasting regimen, or if you're going on a plant-based diet, or if you're doing any of these other things that, that you could be doing, like, how can we test you to see if you're helping your age, your biological age? I am so curious about my telomeres because <laughs> I was just thinking about this. I did a lot of fasting unintentional during all my training, but I also lost a lot of sleep, but then I do meditate. So I, <laughs> just, I'm just saying, maybe I've balanced it out somewhere, but I definitely want to, I want to get this done. I want to see where I'm at. At least it gives you an idea a baseline that you could probably improve, make uh, all the lifestyle adjustments that you need to make so that you can try to live a little bit longer and a little bit healthier while you do that? There's a fitness e- expert in the Bay Area, actually, whose name is Ben Greenfield. And supposedly his telomeres are at age eight. Are you serious? Okay. 
That's what he, that's what, I mean, I haven't seen his test, but that's what he said. And I believe him because he does these intense biohacking things. And so I'm just like fascinated. Like I have an entire mitochondrial protocol that I've kind of done for myself where I do this as I'm chanting my meditative practices in the morning. I'll do 15 to 20 minutes, like 20 minutes under a red light. And there's some mitochondrial effects to that. And then I do 20 minutes to 25 minutes of a sauna. And that helps with detoxification and kind of clearing out my body. And then I do cold and hot hydrotherapy where I do one minute cold, then one minute hot, and it affects my mitochondria. And I've been doing that almost every day if I'm home. And I will say that I feel like I, I feel like a whole different person. It's better than any coffee or chai or anything that you drink, green tea. It, it's amazing. I, I would love to see people instituting their own programs. Like even if they don't have a sauna or a red light, could they just do cold and hot hydrotherapy every day and like how that would affect? There's obviously all the studies on Wim Hof with the, like all the anti-aging and the biohackers are doing and cold hydrotherapy and going into cold stimulation and how that can help reset your mitochondria to start working in a different way and then help you with not only exercise recovery, inflammation. It's very interesting stuff. Like it's kind of, it's just like fun to work with it. Right. And so that's your daily kind of practice. And then do you fast as well? Do you do the intermittent fasting or? So I used to do intermittent fasting. So there's multiple days of, there's multiple different types of fasting. Like we call it like intermittent fasting generally when it's, let's say people are only eating from 10 a.m. to 6 or 7 p.m. Like a lot of people call that intermittent fasting, but you could also call that time-restricted eating. So there's like multiple different names, but time-restricted eating. And I generally recommend people to only eat if they're trying, especially if they're trying to lose weight, but generally in terms of chronobiology, like eating according to like your system, which I'm super fascinated by because Ayurvedic medicine does that as well. And like that can also help you lose weight. So you could just eat from like maybe 11 to seven or 11 to six or however you want to do it, whatever the window is. Or some people call alternate, like intermittent fasting, alternate day fasting, which is like a lot of times I only eat. Like if I'm doing things like really well and I'm at home in a really good situation, I don't eat on Sundays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays. It's pretty intense. Like most people can't do what I'm doing. So sometimes you can just do one 40, 40 hour or like 24 hour fast every two weeks, for example. And, and that's a good way. It just depends on the person and it depends on what they can handle. So I feel like it's important to have somebody who knows about this stuff before deciding. But if you were gonna just pick one, I would say the time-restricted eating one is the most simple. Just eat only from 11 to 7 because look, you're not your metabolic system does not is not able to process food after 7 o'clock. Within 2 or 3 hours of food, like sleeping, you should not be eating. It's going to worsen your sleep. You're not able to process the food as well. It's going to cause like indigestion issues. Like it, it's basically like it's way better to eat during those hours if you can. And so that's where I would start with people. That's really like where I would focus on. But if you're interested in like some of the more hardcore ones there, like you can do the five days a month with Walter Longo, which has research on it. But alternate day fasting has amazing research on it as well. The, like the one that I do, which is the Tuesday, Sunday, Tuesday, Thursday, there's amazing research on that. Oh, there is. Okay. Where could you go to read the research articles on this? I think Jason Fung. Okay. So... I would just say that I'm pretty sure it's Jason Fung who, ha uh, like he does the obesity code and he has compiled so many articles on that, but that's a good one to start with. But he has a couple newer places to go to that, but that that's only for people who've increased up to it. But what you'll find is that if you don't eat anything, like if you eat something small, you won't be able to do it. But if you eat nothing, it won't increase that ghrelin response, which is like that hunger response to then have food, like then want food. Like the key is to just not put anything in your mouth except for water. Right, right. Yeah, I'm a big person that I don't, I, I always do water during my fasting, but, but if you're gonna do it, work your way up to it. 
There's plenty of research on it if you look at it up, up as alternate day fasting or intermittent fasting. Yeah, I've seen some of the research. I was trying to read some of the basic science research around. I think in a more regulated in a more regulated way, it's going to be healthier to do it. But I, I think once you get used to it, you don't really miss the food so much. I think a lot of it is like a is a lot of it is just our thought attachment to food and thought attachment to certain rituals of the day. I think it's something that we may have talked about before, but every single tradition from the beginning of time uses fasting. Every single tradition. I don't know one tradition that doesn't use fasting. And it helps your you reset your body. And like all of the stuff that is trying to repair, it lets go. And I, I think that so it's not just these like physical benefits, but then people have used it for spiritual benefits, physical benefits, like emotional benefits. I found that when I put people on alternate day fasting, they are less anxious. Yeah. Okay. I've noticed this amongst like multiple people that I put on alternate day fasting is that they become less anxious, less stressed out. And that suggests that our food, unfortunately, if you're not eating a like a super clean diet can affect our mood as well. I would say that in the beginning, these things are hard, but if you can work your way up to some of them, that you'll find immense not only losing weight or helping metabolic health or helping aging, but then you'll find benefits of depression, anxiety. You'll find all sorts of other benefits that you'll, not to mention gut health and other things. Yeah. Okay. And so beyond beyond fasting or, or caloric restriction, what other strategies can people use in terms of increasing longevity or increasing their health? We've talked about this before, but just there have been there has been some research on using metformin and statins for longevity and anti-aging and my issue with it is that there are other natural ways to do this. So why are we jumping to something that is a pharmaceutical agent when there are potential side effects of these things? Now, I would say that's a third line. Like, for example, metformin helps with de decreasing reactive oxygen species. It helps with the AMPK pathway. Basically, just saying that it essentially... Can, it does show benefit, but what about the risks of lactic acidosis? There's risk when you use it with kidney, any kind of kidney issue. Same with statins and rhabdomyolysis and, and liver failure, you know, or liver issues. I would say that unless you have, you're really under the guidance of a physician who's looked at your, like your genetics, that you really shouldn't even consider those. Now, David Sinclair who's out of Harvard and a lot of people have heard about. And there's some controversial aspects of what he's done, but he has looked into resveratrol, which is a substance that's found in red wine and, you know, grapes and, and things like that. And essentially at high levels that maybe that could help with aging. And then as well as NAD, which is a type of B3 and NAD is in absolutely intrinsic and decreases with aging. So you need that to make all of the energy in your body. And so if it decreases while you're aging and you can get it through leafy vegetables and yeast, and there's a, full, there's a few different thing, ways that you can get it, but if it decreases in your ability to absorb it and to maintain it, then that's potentially a focus of how you age. So I think that in the end, like that could be, that's another target. That's actually a supplement that I take every day. You do take that? Yeah. Yeah. I take a nicotinic riboside, which is that, which is like an activated form uh, along with resveratrol or terastilbene, which are they're, they're They have a cum cumulative effect if they were, if you take them together and I take that daily, that is something that I will always take. So I use resveratrol on my face. We have like a part of my skincare regimen is this one product that has resveratrol in it. One of the things I wanted to ask is what is a good source though of NAD in terms of supplements, right? One that you can be a little bit more assured that you, it has good bioavailability. And those are the things that I always get concerned about with supplements. I take them because like I know I'm probably not getting enough in my diet of various things. And I've been looking at NAD as well, but I'm like, I don't know if I trust what's out there in terms of their bioavailability. So there's one company that has been doing a lot of, they've been putting out a bunch of research that's actually been quite good. And I think that's Elysium. 
and that's niagen, but they're expensive. I, I use, I personally use thorn. Thorn has very high quality ingredients. There's other ways of doing this where you could take NMN, which is another form, and you can take it liquid. And then there's NAD liquid and Quicksilver has like a product. But what I would say, like I personally, there's a few companies that I really like, but Thorn specifically has a very good price on their product, which is a resveratrol and NAD, like a nicotinic riboside, like combo. That's a good quality. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's the one that I use. That's the one that you use. Yeah. I just wanted to touch a little bit more on metformin. And I think one of the things that was interesting about that drug and, and how you were saying that, you know, we should probably be doing things more naturally. The whole idea of metformin also, and it's been studied, again, a lot of studies have been done in mice in terms of longevity medicine and metformin. So not so much in humans, but it all comes down to the same effects of caloric restriction. So basically fasting. Yeah. So instead of taking this medication with the side effect profile, you're better off to do a fasting type of lifestyle. Yeah, absolutely. And I I think that what they're finding is that they're looking at some of this stuff after the fact. And, you know, in humans, like in humans, what they're they're looking at is after the fact where they're looking at maybe it could increase all cause mortality. They're trying to do a study where they institute patients like a prospective study with 1500 milligrams of metformin. And they just started that within the last year. And to see if they had decreased risk of MI, and they want to do that over a long-term study. So they put that into place. But it, it's interesting because I I want to I just want to hone on in on this idea of caloric restriction versus fasting, which I know is, we're equating as the same thing. But the reason that fasting is different than caloric restriction alone is that during fasting you're completely stopping eating. Like you're not eating anything during that time. I'm just saying in terms of the data, the caloric restriction, they're, they're basically implying like you're taking less per day. A lot of people are doing like 1,000 calorie or 1,200 calorie diets per day, and that doesn't work as well. We actually are finding that being off of food completely, that there is a benefit from that specifically. And like you're saying, I, what I would say is that it's so important to realize that those are just as effective, if not more effective than metformin. But the question is, can you do it? A lot of people can't do it. That's why I say working up to it is really important and not being hard on yourself. And I think that those are the important things. That's like with anything though. We call certain things practices for a reason. They don't just happen overnight. Just changing a habit doesn't happen overnight. So whether you're doing a fasting practice, whether you're doing a meditative practice, everything you just need do a little bit at a time. Some days you may just fall off the wagon, but you just get back on again until it becomes like the habit. So they just take time. Absolutely. I agree with you. Going back to the metformin thing, another place where it affects is the NF-kappa B. And we're finding that you can have other natural substances that are affecting this, like melatonin does that, which is an inflammatory cascade. So why not use natural substances? If you can't just do fasting, there are natural substances like melatonin, for example, that will affect your inflammatory cascade. And turmeric is another one, curcumin, the active component. We know that these things affect the inflammatory cascade. Why not use natural substances instead of using metformin, which we know can affect certain people like poorly. And generally they have good outcomes, but I have seen people with lactic acidosis in the hospital. Oh yeah. I was laughing when you said turmeric because I was like, my dad's laughing right now because ever since we were growing up, always talking about turmeric and inflammation. And then, and now he's just like, see, I told you, like everybody's just (laughs) I'm like, okay, dad. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if I told you, but I'm making like a turmeric milk. This is like a completely aside, a, a, a completely, a complete aside from my medical practice. But I was like, no, I don't know that people are doing it in the traditional Ayurvedic style. And then I don't know if people are doing it at, at the doses that we need to do them according to the research. And so what I'm trying to do is find an inflammatory mix, an anti-inflammatory mix that will be completely adjusted 
to, to doing both of those things. And so that if people are in an inflamed state, because even if you eat really well or eat really healthy or like you, you fast and you, you meditate, there's days that you feel inflamed from different aspects of your life. And so to have something instead of the coffee, it might be a good thing. So it, it's been interesting because I'm playing off your dad's thing because I'm sure it was like a haldi milk, right? Like a turmeric yeah, it's milk. A haldi, it's exactly that's what it is. Exactly. <laughs> and, I, and to me, it just looks disgusting. I'm going to send you a jar of mine. I'm going to send you a okay. jar of mine and see what you think. Okay. Because it's okay, actually pretty good. It's pretty good. It, it, like there's ways of making it taste good. Okay. I'll be your focus group. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to do that. Anyway, I think we're coming up to the end here. This has been so much fun talking with you. I think we could probably talk forever. So what are some closing thoughts you have? We, we talked about preventative health care, preventative health medicine. We talked a little bit about longevity medicine. What are some closing thoughts? During this time, it's so important for everybody to take a deep breath, get off of their screens for a little bit of time. And go be in nature if you can, have enough sleep. And if you're going to take a supplement, take vitamin D, vitamin C and zinc, especially during the coronavirus era, and maybe melatonin. If you take melatonin, like three milligrams at night. And I would just say that there's, there's so many opportunities, no matter what phase of health that you're in, to live your healthiest life. And I think that's a key is just like, how can we be the healthiest that we can be? I think that we can be that by being aware of what we're putting in our body and how we're treating it and just how we're treating others in that process, but also being connected to other people, even though we're socially distancing ourselves, that we still need human connection. That's so important. It's so important for us to be able to do that because who knows when this is going to end? Like, we don't really know. And so I think it's important to maintain connections with community. Yeah. Social connection is also one of those things that's important for longevity too. So, you know, you have a lot of great strategies that you've given to all of us. And I look forward to having like another conversation. We didn't even touch on the MDMA for PTSD. So that will have to be, that will have to be a whole separate podcast at some point. But I think that's also a really cool topic. All right. Thank you very much. Thank and you. please send me your turmeric milk. And yeah, I'm going to do that. <laughs> okay. All right. Awesome. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much. This show is being produced by StudioPod, and for more information, go to studiopodsf.com.